Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with episode number 43 of The Yacking Show. This is where we talk to you about life, business and more, and we bring you tips and ideas for the changing world we find ourselves in. As always, we have interesting guests for you. We have a guest who we've seen before, but I'm going to first welcome Kathleen and she will introduce him. So hello, Kathleen, on this somewhat gloomy day in Ontario, and we're feeling the first of the fall weather coming on, I think, today. I have a sweater on and long pants for first time in weeks. Over to you, Kathleen. <laughs> Hello, Peter. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. And as always, we so appreciate um, you tuning in and your comments. So please keep them coming. And if, you have, if any of you is interested in having uh, an interview with us, please reach out to us. We would love to hear from you, either Peter or myself. And as Peter was saying, yes, we have another special guest with us. And you, you have seen him before. Uh, it's always so informative uh, in what he has to say. So please welcome Barrett Baudouin. Hello, Barrett. How are you? Uh, I'm fabulous as always. How are you doing? Very well, doing thank well. you. So Barrett, um, I know that you've mentioned who you are before and what you do, but perhaps you can tell our listeners and viewers a little bit about you. And I should mention that Barrett is a licensed paralegal. So to you, Barrett. And interestingly enough, I can now officially, for the first time ever, introduce myself as a notary public as well. Oh, fabulous. I my appointment on uh, August 20th. So that was a new change that came in at the beginning of August. Uh, we're allowed appointments as lawyers are under the Notaries Act now. Uh, as Kathleen mentioned, I am a licensed paralegal in the province of Ontario. Uh, paralegals have sort of a limited scope of uh, ability to advocate for uh, different types of legal matters that uh, you can also hire a lawyer for. Uh, but usually um, there's a certain access to justice sort of angle uh, that the law society was kind of um, pushing in order to allow people to have competent advocacy in front of the courts. And it helps, you know, maybe some people who don't have the financial resources and can't afford a lawyer as well. Peter? Excellent. I'm absorbing all that and trying to remember what a notary public does. And I think a notary public signs, witnesses affidavits and puts his very fancy seal. Is that correct, Baron? Yeah, uh, I have a seal. So the one of the main jobs is to um, witness the execution of documents and, and notarize the documents as being true copies. Uh, I can also authenticate copies of original documents. Uh, those are the, sort of the main things. And uh, all notaries, I was already commissioner oaths before by virtue of office, but notaries also have those duties as well. And that's in reference to the affidavits that you uh, had mentioned. I got mesmerized by the fancy seal last time I had it done and I, I couldn't distinguish the difference between the two offices. So my apologies if I demoted you inadvertently. Um, I got a good question for you. Um, I have uh, several grandchildren and my son, who lives not far away from me in Alma, has three youngsters, at uh, one at kindergarten and two at uh, junior school. And there's a huge upset about what's going to happen when they supposedly go back to school. He is totally 
anti-vaccinations. He's very concerned about chemicals that are used to sterilize the classrooms. And he's absolutely uh, appalled at the idea of young children wearing masks. So he believes that forcing young kids to wear masks is, is somewhat tantamount to child abuse. So what parents, what options do parents have? They want to get their kids back to school. For many parents, keeping them at home for another period has a huge financial implication because if both parents work, they have to pay for childcare. And I don't think they get reimbursed for that. And they want their kids to benefit from a proper education where they can learn social skills as well as history, arithmetic and everything else. So what, over to you, what, what options do parents have? Yeah, so I see kind of two things in that question. One is the options that parents have, and um, the uh, the other thing is sort of the equality of the circumstance that we find ourselves in later. So I'll kind of touch on that after the fact. My understanding of the way that it's been set up is that it's really driven by the parents. Uh, they have their option to either put their child back into school with these added preventative measures that have been created. What's kind of interesting about the preventative measures though is that they've all been underpinned by the Occupational Health and Safety Act in Ontario. And I found this interesting because the um, OHSA isn't really designed to protect students right? The whole purpose of that act is to protect workers at a workplace. So that would be the teachers, the administrative staff, principals, all that kind of thing, right? And it appears that there seems to be some kind of a tenuous connection that by implication or extension, these things are meant to protect the students as well. But what concerns me about it is that there isn't actually any real legislative point that you could put your finger on that says, you know, this is what requires school boards to legally protect our kids from getting sick. So I found that kind of an interesting way that they seem to have set this up. Um, essentially what happens is, is that the school boards right now are responsible for implementing all of these programs and the school boards are the actual employer of all the teachers and that kind of thing. So this is where the OHSA implications <laughs> come from. Um, but as far, I have to say, I'm feeling a little like the protection for the students is lacking in some regard. Um, not in so much that the individual policies or anything like that are maybe considered uh, deficient in any way, but just mostly that I would personally be more comfortable if there was something within there um, that specifically correlates the status of a student to the protections that are offered by the Occupational Health and Safety Act, because I could see a very easy argument coming out of this saying that, well, you know what, students aren't workers under the OHSA, so it doesn't matter to them, right? Um, now, when it comes to the actual options that are available, one of the options is to keep your kid at home and, uh, you know, to, they have set up distance learning avenues uh, that are available for parents who choose that option. And it's granular down to the level that you can even have 
say maybe one child who doesn't want to go back to school and wants to do the distance learning and another child who does, they can both go and do those things separately. You're required to fill out a form and send it back to uh, the respective school board. Um, what's concerning to me about this and kind of segueing into the second part is the equality of this whole thing, right? Because some students may not really have the option of staying home and doing distance learning either because they come from a family that doesn't have the resources that another family does. So really what you're creating in this system is, are sort of class systems, right? You're going to have yeah. a lot of the, uh, you know, lower tier, lower income type families that you know, mom and dad both have to go to work because they have low paying jobs and maybe they can't, you know, afford luxuries like really solid internet connections or laptops and computers and all this kind of stuff. So those kids are being forced to go into school just because of the circumstances and they are being exposed to this. Whereas, you know, people on the other end of the spectrum, they have more options available to them, right? They can say, well, you know what? It's not worth it and we don't want our kid to end up on a ventilator or, or risk death or anything so we're not sending them to school we're just going to let them do the distance learning so that's actually one of the aspects that's fairly concerning to me just uh, through the lens of um, e equality in a democratic society right we don't pay a lot of attention to socioeconomic status even in our human rights law or anything like that but you know we can't ignore the fact that socioeconomic status and a lot of these issues like disability or race, um, you know, minority religions, they're almost inextricably linked to socioeconomic status. And I think there really needs to be an alteration in the human rights law to address those issues properly, realizing that those two components are connected and allow society to reconcile um, and think about policies that better address the socioeconomic disadvantages that a lot of people have in order to create a more equal society in general. Mm -hmm. Okay. A big concern I have is that these school uh, regular requirements are, are over the top and unnecessary and unnecessarily as a taxpayer expensive. And I, I have two reasons for saying that. Yesterday, the CDC in America, which is a reputable body, announced that the real death toll from the virus is only 10% of the total statistics. The other 90% all have an average of 2.4 or something comorbidities. So that puts the coronavirus mortality rate less lower than a normal flu season. And the second point is the Deputy Chief Medical Officer of the UK in England has said there's absolutely no evidence that young school children give the virus to teachers. It would be, if anything, the other way around. They are not a risk to themselves or to anyone else. That, that's why I believe the whole thing is overkill. And um, I, I think it's crazy that kids should be subjected to all this when there is not a real threat to their health as no worse than flu. Anyway, that's uh, enough for me. Kathleen's got another question for you. We're, we're really um, pushing the envelope, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> But yes, I, I have another, I have a question for you, Barrett, and it is one that is admittedly very uh, near and dear to my heart because um, it has to do with long-term care facilities. And um, as, as a lot of people know, my, my, my dad passed away 
in a long-term care facility about a month and a half ago, and we were denied access. Uh, even though he was he was dying, we were we were denied access to him, and he ended up dying alone. And I know every long-term care facility ha has a, a different uh, policy, but I, I just wonder, you know, our, our seniors in long-term care facilities don't have a voice. You know, often they're too weak, uh, they're cognitively impaired, uh, they, they just can't fight for themselves, so it's on us to be their voice. And I don't know what recourse people have, and I don't know what legal measures that they have, legal options that they have, but I think something has to change because when I think of people in an apartment building, a landlord can't just come in and say, sorry, we're denying you any access to friends, family, nobody can come in to see you, you are not allowed to leave the building. That just can't happen. And yet it happens in a long-term care facility. And, and can you speak to that, Barrett? I don't know if there is a legal recourse. Yeah, um, I would say that as far as the legalities of really any of these COVID situations go, it's entirely unpredictable and speculative at best. Um, we're going to have to see cases go through the court system that actually bring these issues up in order for a judge to make a decision on it that will form the basis of our common law, right? Um, and what's Perhaps from a topical point of view, what's interesting about the issue that you mentioned, Kathleen, and, and the one that you left off with, Peter, is that really what we're talking about here are Section 1 charter arguments, right? So this, um, this idea that we have these inalienable rights doesn't exist in Canada. It's not like the U.S. where they have these amendments to their constitution, and those are inalienable rights. And you will see American citizens, you know, shouting at each other inappropriately because it doesn't apply, but they'll get into arguments with each other about their rights, right? Um, Canada has a little bit of a different regime when it comes to this stuff. And in our own Charter of Rights and Freedoms, we have the first section where restrictions on freedoms and rights are actually allowed so long as it can be justified in the it, 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 sort of the backdrop of a free and democratic society. So what the heck does that mean, right? Well, the courts when the charter was you know implemented into law and everything the courts came up with this test in a landmark case called rv oaks right and what essentially the courts will look at is to whether or not a law or a, a rule or a policy infringes upon the individual rights of a person are uh there are two sort of prongs to the test the first one is uh to that there needs to be a substantial and pressing concern Okay. And so going back to sort of what Peter was saying about, you know, the more morbidity rate of this and all that kind of stuff, there may be an argument that this isn't really as pressing a concern as uh, some people may lead to believe. Of course, the other side of the coin is, is that you would probably have a whole bunch of public health experts marched out to toll the party line, right? 
-hmm. So there would be a bit of an argument on that part of the test. The next part of the test is the proportionality, and that's divided into three sections. Um, first, there must be a rational connection between the objective and the restriction of the rights. So you could probably make a good case and argue that like, you know, not allowing people to see each other or forcing children to wear masks has a rational connection. Okay, so then we move on to the next part of the test. The restriction must, or the, the law or restriction must minimally impact the rights of the individual. Now, I think maybe with the masks and that kind of stuff, you'd probably get over that part of the test too, because really wearing a mask, is it a substantial impairment on an individual's rights? You know, and this is kind of the greater good test. It, that argument might fail there. But with uh, the issue that Kathleen brought up, I think there's a reasonable argument there that that part would fail in those circumstances because it would be on the onus of the long-term healthcare facilities to really come up with better and more creative ways in order to ensure that patients who were known to be terminally ill or immediately terminally ill during the pandemic had access to their family members. Because I can't think of anything worse than being locked up in a long-term healthcare facility and, you know, everyone has kind of this dream in their mind of, you know, dying on a bed with their family members all around them, right? Mm -hmm. Denying someone that last, you might even want to call it a rite of passage, just seems, it seems cruel and unusual to me, frankly. Me too. Um, the third part of that test is that it has to be there has to be proportionality between the infringement and the objective. This is kind of an interesting portion because it kind of goes back to what Peter was saying about the masks, right? Creating a carte blanche blanket approach is not good enough, the courts have ruled. There has to be a specific goal in mind and whatever the state is doing in order to meet that goal has to minimally impair the rights of the individual, but it can't just be a, well, you know what? Uh, we have all kinds of, I'll give you an example here. So we have all kinds of motor vehicle deaths. Well, let's just ban motor vehicles. Because then no one's going to die from being hit by a car, right? Yeah. Not supposed to get anywhere. <laughs> so that's kind of the idea behind that last part. It has to, it has to be proportional, right? So, um, yeah, but... Uh, the the issue with restricting family members into long-term health cares, I think that there's definitely a really good argument that that could have been handled better and really should have been handled better. Um, it is it doesn't take me a long time in my mind to get to the point where we're letting you know critically ill family members see their loved ones just by having those family members follow certain health and safety protocols as they're going in, you know, maybe put them in, in sterile gowns or something like that. You may not be able to touch the person, but at least you're there with them. There's lots of things that could have been done that would allow people to actually at least physically be in the room with them and not have to, you know, witness their loved one pass away over a Zoom conference call or something like that. And I think really, 
you know, just from your own experience, but, and likely the experience of many other people, I would say that's probably a huge criticism of mine is that they should have been a little bit more creative and a little more open-minded as to how they address those policies and tried some out, out of the box thinking instead of just pressing down on this, you know, one size fits all. And, you know, if we don't let this one person in, then we don't have to argue about why we let this other person in. And that way it's a whole bunch of less work for us, right? They could have created a sign-in log, you know, made sure that there was better contract tracing if these were, and, you know, gone through the whole hand-washing procedures, sterile gowns, the whole thing. So I, I think that's really a failure. And it's, there's been irreparable harm there done. Absolutely. As far as legal recourse. Mm -hmm. um, it's happening, Barrett. It's still happening in hospitals because you're not allowed to even have visitors in hospitals right now. So if somebody is actually dying in the hospital, they're still not allowed right now to go in and uh, have a close family member next to them. Well, I think is just and I think what we have to really realize is that infectious disease control in these environments, it's, it's not brand new. Yeah. You know, these entire institutions are set up for the sole purpose of making sure that, you know, patient A in room 101 doesn't communicate their disease to patient B in room 102, right? They have procedures for hand washing in and out and all this stuff. And it just seems like it was a very... Um, they took a very narrow-minded approach to that and it's upsetting because the consequences are extremely dire to the people who have been subjected um, to the fallout of those policies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a, a quick follow-up question on, on both of the cases and that is consistency. Um, what to me, what torpedoes any credibility mask wearing had was the fact you can go into a restaurant and you're supposed to wear a mask. The moment you sit down at your table and your food arrives, everybody takes their masks off. Now, either masks work or they don't work. So, you know, that, that shoots so, so many holes in that mask for. That's point one. Second one on consistency, I read this morning of a case where the guy's 91-year-old mother had to go into long-term care. And this is just in the last couple of weeks. So they said, okay, she will have to go into two weeks isolation when she gets here to make sure she doesn't infect anyone else. So he said, oh, okay, they had no option. Uh, you can't visit her. Um, she can't go out. She's locked in her room for two weeks. So she can use a phone. So she phones him and said, I cannot get my TV or my little iPad to work. I can't get anything. Can you fix it? So he phones the care home. No, she's in isolation. No one can fix it. But once she finishes her two weeks, she's allowed to go out and visit him at his house and go back into the long-term care home without having to go into isolation. So where is the consistency in that? The word logic. Or logic. logic. Crazy, crazy. Anyway, um, I got another one, and that is there's a lot of uh, aggro coming out about this mask-wearing story. My, my daughter-in-law in, -law in um, Aylmer the other day at a restaurant whose name, fortunately for them, I can't remember, uh, chooses like me not to wear masks anywhere and carries her exemption card and she and a friend, a girlfriend went and sat on the terrace and had a drink and the server came out to see if they wanted another one and a patron was leaving, young guy in mid-30s with a mask on and he started getting really abusive and aggressive towards my daughter-in-law who's quite a, a smallish woman and he, there was no physical violence, she was afraid there was going to be, it got really out of hand 
more servers came out and stood by and did not say a word. Eventually, the manager came out and then said, I think you'd better leave to the, the patron. And my daughter-in-law was, was visibly shaken by this. Unfortunately, she only got the last bit of it on, on video. She didn't think to stop filming it. When my son phoned the manager the next day to demand the contact details for that patron so he could bring a case against him for harassment, he was told we don't have it. And the manager said, we are not obliged to keep contact details. And my son said, well, according to law, you are. So that was a really ugly incident. And I believe it's happening quite a lot. So what recourse would my son have on that one? Or my daughter-in-law, for that matter? Yeah, well, uh, that's a civil law issue. So what happens there is essentially um, an individual has done a wrong to another individual, which is um, technically called a tort, right? So civil law generally deals with two issues. One is contracts because those are, you know, issues between two individuals and they form an agreement, right? There's some dispute with the agreement that goes to the courts. The other thing is there, those are the classification of torts. And those are sort of, um, outside of an existing agreement, there is some kind of civil wrongdoing that occurs. So what's kind of interesting with that situation is that that individual that was yelling at your family member is actually liable for an assault charge. Now, this isn't the assault charge in the context of a uh, criminal, uh, however it could be. Uh, what a lot of people don't really understand about assault is that in the criminal context is that you don't actually have to hit anyone in order for there to be an assault charge. You only have to threaten, mm -hmm. it only has to be threatened and possible in that moment in time that the harm could be done. The same rule applies in the civil law context as well. So assault is literally just the threat of imminent harm. Uh, if harm is actually done or physical contact is made without consent, that's called battery in civil law. So often in cases where there has been physical contact, you'll hear assault and battery. Now, what's interesting about this case is that there's also different categories of liability within uh, civil law as well. Um, the, there's an old, old case uh, Donahue v. Stevenson, which established this whole concept of duty of care. And it was actually a case where a patron purchased the drink from an establishment and gave it to another person, that individual, they took the drink, there was a snail or some slug or something in the, in the ginger beer they were drinking. And uh, basically this ended up in the courts and everyone's like, well, I don't know, can they sue them? Can they not sue them? And that was the big thing that turned. And so they found out in that case that yes, in fact, actually the business is liable because they have what's called a duty of care. Um, so the business could potentially be liable for not stepping in earlier and causing this and enabling the situation by lack of action to escalate to that point. Uh, certainly the individual themselves would be liable. Now, the disclosure of that individual's information, that's kind of an interesting one because technically speaking, the company I don't think would have the responsibility or any legal requirement to disclose that information 
or if they did, uh, they would themselves be in breach of confidentiality and privacy laws. However, if the individual were to sue the business, the first thing that I would do if I was acting for the business is I would say, well, you know what, that's fine, but I'm going to create a counterclaim against the individual without breach uh, themselves yeah, yeah. because they're the one that caused the incident, right? So, and I would expect that that would probably be the smartest tactic that the business would employ because they could show that, you know what, maybe we had a little bit of liability. The courts can split up liability too, right? So they can say, you know what, you're 95% responsible for what happened. You're 4% responsible for what happened and you're 1% responsible for what happened. So that's kind of how that situation would, I think, play out in the legal arena anyway. Okay. Interesting. Interesting one. We're well, getting towards the end of our time. Yes. Um, Barrett, how do people contact you if they want to be notarized or appear before a commissioner of oaths to have the affidavit signed or for any other legal matters? How do they get hold of you? Uh, my phone number is 647-525-6829. And I can be reached at barrett.bodeway at gmail.com. We will put that there. And uh, this has been a very interesting third installment of our ongoing uh, series with Barrett Broadway, the paralegal expert and expert on matters constitutional and uh, becoming very knowledgeable on matters pertaining to the great coronavirus fraud. And those are my terms, not yours. I'm not putting words into your mouth, but I feel very strongly about it. No, this. we usually save that for cross-examination, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just, I just want to keep on the right side, you know. So I'm going to hand back to Kathleen to <laughs> well, see if she has any more. Thanks so much for joining us, Barrett. And we will look forward to having another installment uh, with you in the future. So um, uh, keep our viewers tuned in to that. And again, thank you so much to all of you for tuning in to our show. And your comments are so appreciated. And once again, if any of you is interested in, in being interviewed by Peter and I, please don't hesitate to reach out. So thank you so much, and uh, we will see you next time.